Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Margaret tonight. And our topic is Abraham's righteousness. And what we're, we talked about Abraham last time, uh, nobody questions that Abraham was a righteous person, but there is a big deal about how he got righteous. Very big deal about it. A lot of discussion in Scripture about how, what, what was the nature of Abraham's righteousness because it comes to be all about what is it that saves us. How, how did Abraham get righteous? How did he get saved? And what do we need to do uh, to follow in his footsteps, so to speak? So if you're interested in that topic, I can explain more as we go along. But let's open with a prayer. Shall we, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. Thank you for bringing us together in your name, Lord. We pray for your presence among us as we ponder these topics. Open up your Word to us, Lord. Amen. Amen. Such a pleasure to be with you all, good friends. Sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio and on the phone. Uh, just a blessing. And uh, so Abraham's righteousness. All right, uh, actually where I want to start is first of all in the Psalms right now. Uh, let's look in the middle of your Bible in Psalm 37 because the first thing I need to show is that righteousness has something to do with salvation because that's what we're talking about tonight. So in Psalm 37, I'm looking at those last two verses 39 and 40. What do we read there? But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Yes. The, um, so do you see what that says? There's kind of two groups. There's the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are going to be saved and they're going to be protected from the wicked. So the reason I wanted to read that is because it associates uh, righteousness with salvation, which is a very important point for tonight. And if we look at Psalm 118, a little farther to the right there, um, look at verses 14 and 15 in Psalm 118 there, because again you see a similar theme. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Okay, so you see the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. So we're talking about salvation. And then the voice of rejoicing and salvation. Where? Who is rejoicing? Who is experiencing salvation? It's in the tents of the righteous. The righteous get salvation. You know, it's just important for what we're talking about tonight to establish that the righteous are the people who are saved. And uh, so pondering what that means. And one more along these lines, turn to the right, if you will, go through a few smaller books and get to Isaiah. I want to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 61, uh, because we see a similar thing. There are many, many passages in the Psalms 
that talk about this kind of thing. I want to look at 61 and start at verse 10 and actually go into the beginning of the next chapter. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And let me hit the pause button right there. This is a very interesting passage because it sounds like salvation is just something you can put on, doesn't it? He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. Like, oh, okay. Oh, give me that garment. That'd be great. I'd love to wear that. You know, he can just put salvation on you like a garment. And what is it equal to? The robe of righteousness, right? Salvation and righteousness are parallel again, just as the garments and the robe are parallel. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe, covered me with the robe of righteousness. So, okay, wouldn't that be nice if the Lord could just cover you with a robe of righteousness? Uh, Do go on. What is that like? As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Mm. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Yes, this is what the Lord will do. He will cause this righteousness to spring forth, just like a garden, just like all this growth. Righteousness will increase. And then look at 62 verse 1, such a beautiful idea there. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. And you see again, good friends, that the righteousness and the salvation are parallel again, are they not? For Zion's sake, I won't hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness of it goes forth as brightness and the salvation as a lamp that burns. So righteousness and salvation are made equivalent and they sound like something you could just like put on like a cloak or, you know, you could be covered with with righteousness and salvation. Like, okay, great. Maybe that could happen very quickly and, and you could quickly become righteous. All right, so let's turn to Abraham's righteousness now. Let's look in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 15 because this is, this is the central passage for what we're talking about tonight. Okay. Uh, let's start at 15, verse 1. We read some of this in previous weeks, but let's have a look at this again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Oh, shield. Is that a little bit like the cloak or the garment or something? You know, the Lord is a shield. And this Abram is the same as Abraham. His name changes later, but it's the same person. All right, go on. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Yes, he doesn't even have his own son, the, the person who stands to inherit everything. is somebody from Syria, you know, it's somebody from a different place. Go on. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. That's right. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Okay, so the Lord is saying a grand promise to him. Uh, first, it starts with just, you will have your own blood child, so to speak, or whatever. You know, uh, you will have a child. 
And then what's the second half of the promise in verse 5 there? Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So your descendants be. Wow. So he's not only saying you will have one child uh, who's not just your servant from Syria or something, but it'll be your own child, but you, you, you won't be able to count the number of descendants that you'll have. There'll be a tremendous number that will come from that, as many as the stars. And here's verse 6. Drum roll, please. Go on. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Ah, oh, well, there's an answer to it. Goes, hmm, aha. <laughs> so he believed in the Lord, and he, what did you say, accounted no, it to him? Accounted he him. accounted it to him for righteousness. Oh, so the way that Abram got this righteousness, maybe, was because he believed this wild thing that the Lord said. Abram complained about, hey, I don't have my own child. You know, I don't have an heir. And Abram was not all that young at this point. And, um, and the Lord says, oh, you'll not only have a child, but you'll have so many descendants, it'll be like the stars of the heaven. And Abram believed him, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, because he believed in him, the way many people read this is it means that that belief that he had made him righteous. What makes you righteous and therefore saved is your faith. He had belief. He believed and therefore he's righteous and therefore he will be saved. So this, you know, that's the way a lot of people read that. So, very important verse, 15, verse 6 there. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. All right, I think um, I want to go up to where this gets talked about by Paul. Well, no, let's look around here just a little bit first. Uh, You see, uh, there was a sign of the covenant between the Lord and the people, and that sign was circumcision. And circumcision doesn't come into the text until 17. See, we're in Genesis 15. In 17, circumcision comes in. Let's look over at chapter 17. If you look at 17, verse 10, what does that say there? This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. That's right. And uh, so... The circumcision is the sign of the covenant. You know, this is the covenant uh, between us that there'll be circumcision. But Abram already believed in chapter 15. It it, it wasn't, you know. And a little uh, question, uh, when do the Ten Commandments come along relative to this? Hmm, this is Abram. When does the ten... That's Moses, right? It's over 400 years later. So 400 years before the Ten Commandments are given by God on Mount Sinai, Abram's already righteous. So was he following the Ten Commandments? Well, Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet. Weren't going to be given for 400 years. No circumcision yet. So what is the basis of his righteousness? It's that he believed. 
So this has been a big, um, you know, point for people who feel like, well, look, faith is what saves you. You see, you know, with Abram, before there was circumcision, before there were Ten Commandments, he was saved just because he believed something the Lord said. You know, he believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's talk, I don't know, let's talk about imputation. <laughs> okay, imputation, I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. And you see that P-U-T in there? Uh, puto, putare, is a Latin uh, verb that means to think or consider or reckon. Uh, there's a related word in English, which is the word reputation. More familiar word. What is your reputation? Is it the way you truly are? No, it's the way people think you are, right? You might have a bad reputation. You might be a great person, but you have a bad reputation. You might have a great reputation. You might be a horrible person. Your reputation isn't necessarily who you are, it's who people think you are. You see what I mean? So that root in there. When there's a dispute, dis means apart. There are people thinking separately. They're thinking differently. So there's a dispute. So what an imputation is, is that you consider, just like when you think, well, I think... This is what I think. This, this is my opinion of that person. That's their reputation as far as I'm concerned. Imputation is considering that someone is a certain way. So other terms by which we might express this would be, like sometimes in English, it's hardly ever used. It's been going out of style since the 18th century. But, the, um, but if you hear it, often you hear it like bad motives were imputed to you. Like maybe you didn't have bad motives. Doesn't mean you had bad motives, but that they were imputed to you because somebody else considered that, I think you did that just for self-centered reasons or something, you know, and then you have bad motives uh, attributed to you. So that's imputation. Those of you who uh, live under the joy of the Internal Revenue Service may know about imputed interest, which is where if there's a loan between people and the interest rate really should be something, doesn't matter what the interest rate actually was, you get taxed on the imputed interest rate. So the imputation is not that it was actually what you paid. It's sort of what is someone considered you should have paid. That's what imputation is. And so this idea that accounted is an interesting word, isn't it? It accounted to him. In the old King James, it just says counted, accounted to him for righteousness. And you'll see some of the way it's rendered in the New Testament is imputed to him. So this imputation, like wouldn't it be nice if you could just have salvation imputed to you like a nice cloak, you could just be covered in that righteousness, you know, like a garment, and Bob's your uncle, as they say, you know, like you're, you're home free. Uh, that would be great. Is that how that works? Uh, th there's been a lot of debate about that in Christianity. And partly it's because of Abram's situation here. Okay, let's look at some passages where this imputation gets talked about. Look in the New Testament. This is such an important passage. Okay, we're going to the New Testament, and we are going through the four Gospels. 
through the book of Acts to the mighty epistle to the Romans. Paul's epistle to the Romans. And there's a passage in here of such great importance to this topic that it can't be overstated. And that's in Romans chapter 3. And uh, so there's, it's a long disquisition about the deeds of the law. Do you need to follow the law or not and all this. And um, let's pick up at verse 28 because this is the, the central sort of passage that gets quoted a lot. Romans 3.28 Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Man is justified by faith, by believing, apart from the deeds of the law. The way people have read that is that you don't have to live by the commandments. You don't even have to live by the Ten Commandments. Faith is enough. Your faith, you know. And what does justified mean? Justified has the same root in it. You can't really see it in the English word, but has the same root as righteousness. It is how are you considered righteous? You're considered righteous on the basis of your belief, not by what a good boy am I, because I did all the things, you know? Uh, so that's the way people have read that. Now, look at verse 29. I want to explain this a little bit. Look at verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Hmm, the Gentiles. What are the Gentiles doing in this discussion? Go on. Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Ah, so who were the circumcised? The circumcised of the Jewish people, because that was the sign of the covenant. Right. So circumcision is here in this discussion. And then the uncircumcised are everybody else, right? Outside the, the Gentiles, outside of Judaism. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And then what does he say in verse 31? Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish the law. Now, it sounds contradictory. And look at chapter 4. What, what does chapter 4 start with then? What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Okay, go on. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Oh, see, if he was justified, in other words, made righteous by what he did, then he could brag and say, hey, I'm so righteous. I did all these great things, and that's why I'm so righteous. But look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Ah, that's our verse. Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, as evidence for how this whole thing works, how salvation works. And... Um, Let's have a look that, uh, okay, look down at verse 9, just in the interest of time. Oh, look at verse 8, because it uses the I word, at least it does in my translation. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Oh, how nice, see, even if you sinned, if it's not imputed, then it's like it never happened, right? You don't get, so you're not blamed for it. Imputation is like credit or blame assigned by somebody else. You know, like you're not blamed for it. Blessed is the person to whom the Lord does not impute. doesn't say whether you sinned or not, but he didn't impute it. So that's good, right, if he doesn't impute it. All right, go on. Look at verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Oh, 
For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. See, belief, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Go on. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Ah, well, we know the answer. There was no circumcision until chapter 17. And this is in chapter 15. It's two chapters earlier. So no, it wasn't because he was circumcised. That's not why. It was something else. Go on. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. He had faith before he even went through that. That's right. Go on. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Oh, imputed accounted, imputed, right? That righteousness should be imputed to them too. So he would be the father of all who believe, not just people who are, in other words, not just Judaism, but all who believe so that righteousness might be imputed to them too. Well, wait a minute though. How could you be righteous if you're not following the law? Isn't the law what makes you right? You know, you're following that. That's what righteous is. How could he say that? And look at verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Oh, now that's an important point, though, because if you're trying to make the case that, oh, this is just about your belief, it's more than belief to say that you walk in the steps, you live the same type of life that Abraham lived, right? Didn't it say that there? Mm -hmm. Those who not only, so it's not just like a matter of the physical flesh and whether you're circumcised or not, but it's did you walk in the steps of that faith that Abraham walked in even before the circumcision came along? Are you living the way Abraham did? Because that's important. Uh, uh, let's just read one more verse. There's so much in here. but For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And how Paul knows that, how he can assert that so strongly, is that the law didn't exist in that form. You know what I mean? Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. Hadn't, isn't going to happen for another 400 years after Abraham. So it wasn't by that. There's something else that was going on before that. Okay, one more passage that's like this. Let's go to Galatians. So turn to the right. You go through First and Second Corinthians, and you get to Galatians there. This is Paul, another of the Pauline epistles. And in chapter 3, uh, let's start at verse 5, just for the sake of whatever. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do it by the works of the law or by the bearing of faith? Oh, okay. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6 again. See, here's this big example that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Go on. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Yeah, what it is to be a son of Abraham is to have that faith that Abraham had before any of the rest of this went down. Go on. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Yes, okay. So now that verse is very important there, that verse 8. It, what's he talking about? That foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles through faith. What is Paul talking about? Well, I have a, a theory, good friends, about what he's talking about and why Abraham keeps coming into this conversation. And to get to that, we've really got to study who Paul is just a little bit. Uh, let's go back to the left, actually, and go to the book of Acts. If you get back to John, you've gone too far. Let's go to Acts 26, very late in Acts there. Paul talks about, now you may or may not know that Paul's name used to be Saul, and he was a very strict Pharisee living by the rules and the laws and all the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, and he was persecuting Christians. He wanted to kill them, hound them in any way that he possibly could. And he himself says this. And in Acts 26, 13 is one of three places where he tells the story of what happened to him. So he was actually on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians when in verse 13, what happened? At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wow. So a voice from the sky is Jesus. Now to any good person trained in Judaism, the only voice from the sky is Jesus. Jehovah, it's God, you know, it's God Almighty. So he hears a voice from the sky and he has to say, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. Now go on, what does he tell him? But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. Oh, now that last bit is very important. What does that say? To the Gentiles? As well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. Oh, Paul's being sent to non-Jews. He's being sent to the uncircumcised. He's being sent to people who do not follow the law. None of the laws. The dietary laws, whatever, you know, they don't do that. They're not part of Judaism. He's being sent to the Gentiles. I think that's a really crucial thing. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And what is Paul supposed to do for those people to the Gentiles? Verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They're sanctified by faith. So, so okay, and uh, I want to read one more thing. I'm bursting to say to himself, but, you know, no difference from a normal day. Uh, let's turn to the right, <laughs> first and second Corinthians again, and let's go through Galatians and Ephesians to Philippians, if you can find that, good friends, because 
Paul tells you something about himself here in Philippians chapter 3. We are particularly... Okay, let's just... um, Let's start at the first verse there and read down a little bit. Because this is Paul's sort of little autobiography or something. And it's very important, I think, for understanding what we're talking about. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the, mul- of the mutilation. Mm. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Oh, now he's talking about a kind of spiritual circumcision there. We're the circumcision that worships God in the spirit. This is different. This is spiritual, right? He's talking about a spiritual circumcision or what elsewhere in Scripture is called the circumcision of the heart. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's talking about, well, just to have a dietary law or to go through circumcision, that's a fleshly thing. We're not talking about, hey, I'm in the it club because I got the circumcision thing. You know, that's how you know I'm, I'm all that and everything. So, uh, no, that's not it. We don't have confidence in the flesh. And then Paul says something about himself in that regard. What does he say? Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Yes. If we're talking about the flesh situation, I win. Hands down, I'm telling you right now, I've got you beat. If we're talking about righteousness in the flesh, I win that contest, I'm telling you. And what does he say? What's his credentials? Circumcised the eighth day. That's right, just the way you're supposed to do it. Of the stock of Israel. That's right, from the right stock. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a good tribe. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Among Hebrews... He's a Hebrew of the Hebrew. You know, he's like a super Hebrew or something. Yeah, so he's doing everything right. Go on. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee who are the greatest sticklers of knowing every single detail about the law and all that kind of stuff. That's what the Pharisees were, right? And what else does he say about himself? Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Mm. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. There it is. If there's righteousness in the law, Paul was blameless. He was acing this thing. He could actually tell you what the 613 commandments were and which one applied. Is it the right time of where exactly the Sabbath starts because of where you can tell blue from green or exactly is it this with mother's milk and all the dietary things? He knew all that and he was blameless. If the law does it, He was acing it, and he'd been acing it since he was eight days old, you know? And so if that was supposed to do it, then he was the king. But what happened to him on the road to Damascus while he was doing his great thing of like, I'm persecuting the Christians because they're enemies of the faith, and I'm doing everything right, and I'm following all the rules, and Jesus comes down and says, why are you persecuting me? Whoa. So if you're talking about confidence in the flesh... I got the flesh thing down pat, and I got to tell you, it wasn't working for me. Because Jesus came and said, you're not all right. I thought I, was, I thought I was acing it. I was not all right. I was not doing it right. You know? I was doing it dead wrong. 
And the Lord came down and asked him to go to the Gentiles. Okay, let's read a few more verses here. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yeah, so that whole thing that was his big, this is my great achievement, you know, my life's work. This is what makes me so great. And Jesus says, you're horrible. You know, <laughs> I need you to change. You know? And so everything that was gained to him was lost for Christ. It was actually a minus. That was a debit, not a credit, you know? Go on. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, mm. for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's right. He was happy to let go of that whole former life because now he's got something way better. He's got the Lord in his life. He has a relationship with the Lord. And look at verse 9, so important. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Oh, isn't there some expression about self-righteousness or something like that? Like, oh, not having my own righteousness, okay. Which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And what I think he means by the law there, you see the term law is slippery. But I think what he means by the law there is circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's the 613 commandments and rules and injunctions and statutes and judgments and all that. He's doing all that stuff correctly, but that was just making him self-righteous. He was kind of a nightmare, you know? He wasn't a nice person. He wasn't a good person, but he was doing it right. <laughs> you know, he was doing it to the letter, uh, but that was just self-righteousness, uh, which is of the law. But what was he getting instead of that? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's right. And he goes on this beautiful thing about, I'm just striving. I'm following the Lord. I haven't already attained. I just press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we need to you know, just keep doing. Let's walk by this same rule and move forwards and everything. It's not this big perfection thing that he was before. Uh, he says explicitly in, in verse 12, not as though I'd already attained or was already perfect. You know, he thought he was perfect before, I think, but, but no, now he realized, no, I'm very imperfect, uh, but I'm just following the Lord and doing my best. And so self-righteousness that comes out of the law. So this is, this is part of where Paul comes from. If, any, if following those 613 rules, if knowing them and following them made you righteous, then he was the biggest righteous guy on the block. But that wasn't righteousness. That was self-righteousness righteousness. He saw a distinction that he hadn't seen before when the Lord came down. And who did the Lord send him to? I'm going to draw something else on the map here. Uh, just, uh, I'll just draw a big circle for those of you just getting the audio, try to describe this, just to say these are people in the circle, are people following the 613 rules. And so there's a certain group, there's a community, right? They have the rules, they're reading the Torah and the, you know, the Tanakh and everything, and they're following these rules, and that's the group. And within that, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was excelling in this system and this group, and therefore he was persecuting these Christians for being outside of this thing. They were a threat, you know, they were the enemy because they're outside this thing. 
Now, all of a sudden, here comes the Lord, and he says to him, um, good, quote-unquote, Gentiles are all the people outside that circle. You know, that's not the only, there are evil Gentiles too, but you've got good uh, Gentiles out here, and the Lord calls him to go to the Gentiles and Christianity only got started like nobody really knew what it was yet. What are the rules? Am I going out to the Gentiles to try to get them to follow the 613 rules and get circumcised and everything? Is that what I'm doing? Is that going to bring them righteousness? Because what did the Lord ask him to bring? You know, light in their darkness. Turn them around, right? Get them to change their lives. Is it going to make them righteous to follow the 613 rules? Hmm, well, let me see. Did it work for me? No, I was horrible, you know? So he's not trying to get the 613 rules to these people. So he's got a real problem. I'm going, the Lord sent me out, and I'm supposed to bring a message to these people about how to be saved. The Lord told me to go save these, these people outside the circle. You know, the others. Go save... Stop being all righteous about how you're inside this circle. Go outside the circle and save other people who don't have this law and are not following it and have no intention of following it. And so he thinks, wow, how am I going to do that? I don't even know what salvation... I'm all upside down because I thought I was acing it here and the Lord was upset with me and I don't know what the rules are now and what am I supposed to tell everybody else, all these people out here, I'm not going to be able to convince them to go through circumcision and 613 laws. Is that what we're doing? That's not what we're doing, is it? So how am I supposed to do, how am I supposed to address this situation? It's just a theory. Might be a heresy, good friends. I apologize if it is. But my thought from these passages that we've read tonight is that the Lord answered Paul in Genesis 15, 6. Where did Paul get his... And I'm amazed. You read the epistles of Paul. Paul knew his Old Testament. Back to front. You know, he'll see a situation. He'll go, oh, this is like that scripture about not muzzling the ox when it's treading out the grain. Right, right, right. You know, he knew his Old Testament. Backwards, forwards, upside down, sideways. He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Where does he turn to get information about how he's going to bring this message to the Gentiles? He looks to the Torah, to the books that he loves and knows, to the prophets, the Psalms, and all that. And what does he see? I think the Lord opens his eyes because he realizes, wait a minute. Abraham wasn't quote-unquote Jewish. I mean, he didn't have the Ten Commandments. Abraham wasn't following the 613 rules. He didn't even have the circumcision yet. But it was counted to him for righteousness because he believed. He believed. So that's what it is. You've got to believe in the Lord. Understand who the Lord is. Have faith in the Lord. That's what you need, not the 613 laws. So when Paul says, uh, I conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, he's talking about, I think you're justified by faith in the Lord apart from these 613 rules. Because believe me, I went that route and it didn't work for me. And now I'm on a different path over here, practicing repentance and changing and pressing toward the mark and so on. Uh, so 
That's the transformation I've been through. I'm a living sermon of what I'm talking about, says Paul, and I'm trying to bring that message to the Gentiles because I've changed my whole life. I used to persecute you people, and now I'm trying to help you. you know? And now I'm trying to spread this thing. People didn't believe it at first when he, when he turned everything around. Okay, so I think that's where Paul is coming from. Does that make sense? I think where he's coming from is that it's got to be a different basis, and then he finds in the Scripture this answer... I love the fact that Scripture opens up to him and talks to him about this issue and says, look at Abraham. And he realizes, whoa, wait a minute. This is pre-Ten Commandments, pre-circumcision. That, to me, makes sense of all those passages. Right after he says that thing about not you know, justified by faith apart from the works of law, he starts talking about Abraham right away, doesn't he? And the Gentiles. Gentiles. And that Abraham is the father of the Gentiles, too, because they need to walk the way Abraham walked. Oh, well, wait a second. Now, how was, I thought it was just Abraham's faith. How was Abraham walking? Okay, let's go back to Genesis and have another look here. Okay, let's go all the way back. Let's go to Genesis 12 again, just because it's so much fun. Okay, um, I just want to read the first four verses of Genesis 12 because we do that every week, whether we need to or not. <laughs> now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what did Abraham do? So Abraham departed, as the Lord had spoken to him. Okay, so we can stop there. Um, two things that I want to draw your attention to tonight. One is that what, what just happened there? God spoke to Abraham. That was pretty cool. God spoke to Abraham, right? He spoke directly to him. And he said, here's what I want you to do. And then what did Abraham do? He did it. Was that an easy little thing that he had to do? Oh, just sure. I'll turn off the lights when I go to bed, you know. Was it an easy little thing? No. He had to change his whole life. He had to leave where he was living, go to a different place, up, up, whole upheaval his entire life. He changed his entire life on the basis of what the Lord said to him. So when it says Abraham believed and it was counted for him to righteousness, that's in chapter 15. Chapter 12, Abraham's already changed his entire life on the basis of what the Lord said to him. Okay? Now, look at verse 7. What happens at the beginning of verse 7? Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Okay, and we can stop there. Oh, the Lord not only spoke to him, he appeared to him. The Lord is speaking to him. The Lord appeared to him. Wow, that's back in chapter 12. The Lord is appearing to him. Okay, so the plot thickens, as it ever does in Scripture. Um, now, uh, something happens. Uh, look at verse uh, 13, verse 14. Just the very first few words there. Please say you are my sister. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Where are we? 13, verse 14? Oh, chapter 13. Yes, I'm sorry. Oh, chapter sorry. 13, <laughs> verse 14. Okay. Very first words there. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Abram... Yeah, he's speaking to him again. Lord, speak, Lord speaks to him. Lord appears to him and speaks to him. Lord speaks to him again. Then, chapter 14, we don't have time to read it, 
But basically the gist, if you can sort of skim it, is there's these five kings and these four kings, and they go to war, and they capture Lot, and they take him away. Look at verse 12. They took Lot and uh, all his stuff, and they departed. So he's been captured. And look at verse 13. I just like this little detail. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Oh, Abram the who? The Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. Oh, Abram's a Hebrew. I wonder whether Paul could kind of relate to Abram in a way. I mean, it might be outrageous for him to think that because everybody practically worshipped Abraham. You know, he was amazing, the, the sort of progenitor of the whole thing. But Abram's a Hebrew. Paul's a Hebrew. The Lord appears to Abram. The Lord appeared to Paul. You know, he's sort of connecting with Abram's story here, taking it personally in a way, I think. And uh, so a Abram gets told about this. And when he heard that uh, this happened in verse 14, what does he do? Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Yes, and he beat all of them. He, he went to battle. He got Lot and all his people back. Is this a guy who's not doing anything? Is this a guy who's sitting around the house believing things? <laughs> oh, I had another thought, dear. You know. No, he's very active. He's in a battle, you know, and he, he's doing things. And after he wins this battle, this beautiful thing comes forth. I'm sorry, I even mentioned this very name tonight. How do you do with uh, verse 18 there? What happens? Then Melchizedek... Whoa, it's good. This reader's good. King of the Salem brought <laughs> out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, mm. and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth. Yes, that's right. So he gives him a sort of archetypal holy supper or communion, you know, Eucharist, way back before there was anything like that. He brings out bread and wine. He blesses him. He gives Abram a tithe, doesn't he? Or one of them tithes to the other one at any rate. And there are, um, and he says, you're blessed. Uh, you're Abram of the most high God who possesses both heaven and earth. And um, so Abram has followed the Lord, uprooted his whole life. When it was time to go to battle, he went to battle. He was successful. He took the bread and the wine. All this happened before chapter 15, right? So it's not like he woke up one day and started believing something. He's been very active already in the story before the believing thing comes along. So, and then in, verse, in chapter 15, then after these things, after all that, then the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, it says. He's having visions, he's seeing an appearance of the Lord. You know, all this stuff is going on, a very spiritual person. And... Uh, and the Lord is speaking to him again and says all these things. And now, after uprooting his whole life, after winning these amazing battles and getting Lot and all his people back, after getting the bread and the wine and being blessed by Melchizedek, then he believes the Lord. And the Lord accounts it to him for righteousness. I think there's another way to read that. He believes because he's a righteous person. He, his faith is credited to the fact that he is righteous. 
not that his faith it therefore means he's righteous. Uh, it, now all of a sudden, because he had that faith, he was already righteous, and that faith is credited to the fact that he was a righteous person. I think it's, it's an upside-down way to read it, but I think it's correct. Now, another little tiny wrinkle. The plot always think, thickens, doesn't it, friends? Uh, look at verses 7 and 8 here. Which chapter? This is in chapter 15. I'm sorry, Genesis 15. So 15, 6, he says he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then the Lord speaks to him again in verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Okay, and Abram being a person of unbelievable faith said, I believe you, Lord. I accept that 100%. No, what did Abram say? And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Oh, this is our big faith guy here? Our big faith guy says, well, how, how do I know that? Maybe you're not on the level. Two verses later, he's questioning what the Lord, you know, a moment ago he said, that's great, I love it. <laughs> that's counted for righteousness. And then the Lord says one more thing and he says, are you sure? Really? Like, how do I know? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Nobody talks about 15 verse 8. Never heard anybody talk about 15 verse 8. Everybody's very fixated on 15 verse 6. But if this is a guy of this unbelievable faith, he's all of a sudden sounding like he's kind of questioning the Lord a little bit in verse 8. And so the Lord gives him this little test. Hey, take these animals, divide them in half, and then things happen. And then, uh, you know, in this crazy horror of great darkness falls on him. And then he says to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be a stranger in a strange land and all that. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. And uh, so there's this whole prophecy that goes on. And then in verse 18, in that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said he'd given them the whole land and all that. And that's how the story goes from there. So, yes, Abram believed, but his believing happened against the context of three and a half chapters of good works, right? He changed his whole life. He went to battle. He, he, he's listening to the Lord. He's obeying. He's having visions. The Lord's appearing to him. And on the basis of that is where this faith comes in. And I don't think Paul would disagree with that because I think Paul's been very much misunderstood to say, oh, all you have to do is believe. One thing is that Paul is clearly in that Romans 3.28 talking about Circumcision, when he says man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, the very next verse starts talking about circumcision because he's thinking about the Gentiles and how to get this out to people who aren't in the law camp, aren't, aren't the people who are following that same Mosaic law. And there's more things about that in, in the book of Acts where Peter and Paul seem to have a disagreement about whether you should, they call it Judaizing, you know, should you follow that law or should you not follow it and when? And there's a lot of upheaval in early Christianity about that. And uh, let's go to the New Testament. Let's say go all the way back to Revelation and then hit reverse and go back through the epistles of John, the epistles of Peter, and then land on James right there. Because James talks about this. <clears throat> Let's start at the 14th verse of chapter 2 in James. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone say, says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can faith save him? That's the question. Can faith save him? Can faith make someone righteous? Go on. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, mm. and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? That's right. I can't help but think of all those people who lost so much in the hurricanes and everything. How much good would it tell them to just say, oh, be warmed and filled. You know, you're fine. Uh, no, you've got to actually do the thing. You've got to help them out. Look at verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Hmm, go on. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. By my works. That's right. You believe that there is one God. Now, this is a chilling statement, okay? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons believe and tremble. And Swedenborg supports this point, by the way. He talks about there's lots of, quote-unquote, faith in God the Father in hell. There's lots of people who, who pray to God the Father. You know, it's not an atheist situation down there. There are, there are whole vast hells that believe in God the Father. They have, no pro they have a problem with Jesus. They have no problem with God the Father. Now, the devils believe and tremble. Faith is supposed to save you? Well, if there are devils who believe, how's that going to work for you? You know? It's got to be something more than just believing, right? This is what James is driving at. And go on. Look at what he says. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, what does he say as his example? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Oh, I guess so, yes. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Ah, his works perfected his faith. So the fact that he believed was a result of the fact that he'd done these battles, he'd done all this work. You know, that's why he was able to believe, because he'd led a good life. That's the way faith goes. Go on. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Yes, in the old King James, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Yes. And he was called the friend of God. Mm. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Not by faith only. That's right. That's the closest you ever get in Scripture to the words faith alone is a rejection of the idea of faith alone as a justification. Go on. Another interesting little example here. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she was not a member of the Jewish community. She was not following the law, but she helped everybody out, right? And wasn't she justified by her works? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Mm. And then he says this astonishing thing that I've meditated on a lot. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And if you follow the parallelism, you've got a body and you've got a spirit and faith without works. So that means that works are on the inside and faith is on the outside. Works are the spirit of faith. They're the soul of it. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so just a mere faith on the outside, like thinking something, doesn't do anything for you unless your works are siphoning it in. And Swedenborg explains at great length why that is the case. Uh, I'll try to do justice to it in a few.
few minutes here. Um, basically, I guess the nutshell is that faith comes from the Lord. Didn't it say something about the Lord cloaks us with righteousness and covers us, you know, with all that? It comes from the Lord. That doesn't mean it comes quickly, but it comes from the Lord. He gives us that, that cloak. The cloak and the covering have to do with the fact that it, it's truth that comes from love, which is what the covering corresponds to. Um, it's not that he sort of hides all your horribleness because he just throws a cloak over you so no one can see you and calls you righteous and lets you into heaven to be a hellion up in heaven. What would be the point of that? Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, the fact that you can say, like when the Lord says to people, go your way, your faith has made you whole, it's because if you have faith, that's the last thing you get. You must already have a good life, and therefore now you've got everything you need and you're whole. That's why faith makes you whole. Not faith by itself makes you whole. It's the last thing, and that's faith with something. It's the last thing to show up. And um, faith comes from the Lord. So does having love in your heart for other people. They come from the Lord. It's not limited to a decision. It's not something you say, I decide to believe. That could be an important moment, but that's not the sum. It's not like I decide to believe. Oh, great, I believe now. Not how it works. If, have you looked at yourself, good friends, like, doesn't it evolve very gradually over a period of time that things start to make sense to you? Or sometimes you're just hearing something on the radio and you just have sort of an insight of maybe how heaven sees that thing or, or something. You know, it happens very gradually as you, as you live your life. Faith is really a communication from the Lord through heaven to us. And if our lives are just horrible, they don't want to be that close to us and putting all this good stuff in our mind. You have to live a good life then the faith comes in. The faith is the body of those works that are already on the inside. They're transforming the inside. It's counterintuitive, but that's actually the way that it works. And that's how you can resolve all these different passages. It sounds like a fight between Paul and James, but I don't think they disagree. Paul is not saying, oh, it's unimportant how you live your life. Paul is constantly railing against wickedness. And he's constant. Does, does this get rid of the law? No, God forbid. This upholds the law and everything. It, he's huge on the Ten Commandments and everything. It's just he's talking about his own situation where the 613, that doesn't do it. You need something else. You need some actual vision of the Lord. It's not self-righteousness. It's something you get from the Lord as you live a good life. That's how this whole thing works. And one final point that may take me a little while to articulate here, good friends. If you pray for me, I'll do a better job than if you don't. Um, but um, Abraham uh, represents the Lord. In fact, everybody in the Old Testament, as we learned from Luke 24, is an aspect of the Lord. It's the Lord's story. Abraham's story is the Lord's story. I want to read just a couple of verses along this line. If you go to the middle of your Bible, if you're around the Psalms or Isaiah, turn to the right and get to Jeremiah. I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 23. It's just to the right of Isaiah there. Jeremiah 23, um, verses 5 
and 6. This is a future prediction from the Old Testament perspective about what's going to happen. What does it say? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Kings shall reign and prosper and ex execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Aha! Uh -huh. He'll execute judgment and righteousness in the earth, okay? In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. There's salvation. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. That's his name. His name is the Lord our righteousness. It's like you could put an is in there. You know, the Lord is our righteousness. That's where our righteousness comes from. It doesn't come, it's not self-righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. It repeats it a couple of times in Jeremiah. Um, the, uh, the point that Swedenborg makes over and over again is that the Lord became righteous by coming into the world and battling the hells. Uh, he became righteousness. That's why his name is the Lord, our righteousness. You know, he is righteousness itself. He became righteousness. The only way we get righteousness is by aligning with him and receiving him in some way, being a good person. Um, one point I want to make about the, see, the 613 laws, it's so much human nature and it's very understandable, but you have these laws, it just creates a little membrane around a group of people who are saying, well, we're following the law, we're doing it right, all those other people not doing it right, they don't have the law, they're unclean, we shouldn't even hang out with them and everything. And you just naturally get this kind of skin around it, you know? Uh, but those laws, if you understood them spiritually, are the laws that all these good Gentiles are following, all these people who are not, they may not be separating milk and, and meat, but they're doing it in their spirit. They may not be putting the blood on the thumb and the, killing the pigeon, you know, but they're doing it in the spirit because that's what the Lord leads them to do as they live a good life. It's a classic level error of mistaking the thing on the outside for the thing on the inside. So you could follow the outside and turn into Paul, who's sort of a murderous nightmare, you know. Uh, it's the inside that makes you good, whether you're in here or out there, you know, whether you're part of the, the, the believing community or you're out there in the world. It's the same, same rules for everybody. Um, so the Lord, uh, that picture of Abraham is a picture, just those little verses that we read, leaving the Father's land, traveling, following the Lord, the Lord appears to him, and then there's a huge battle. This is a picture of the Lord's battles with the hells. And he became righteousness. That's what it means. The Lord became righteousness itself. Who cares whether Abram was, was righteous or not? The important thing is that the Lord, who Abraham stands for, became righteousness itself. Why? Last time we talked about Abraham being love. He was, the Lord was love for the salvation of the entire human race. The entire human race. We'll be looking at this a little more next time. And uh, so it was from that love that he fought the hells meant by all those kings. And he rescued Lot, which is like the outer self, dragged it back from hell, you know, uh, rescued the people. And that is how he became. He actually had that imputed to him. You cannot impute the Lord's righteousness. There's this idea. Oh, well, the Lord did all that great stuff. I don't have to do anything. I'll just get his cloak of merit and I'll be fine. 
doesn't work that way. You can't have the Lord's righteousness imputed to you. It, it doesn't work that way. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, it's really the other way around, that he had faith because he was righteous. Um, and the Lord was righteousness itself through these battles. So I love that image. The Lord had won all these battles. So it wasn't just belief by itself. Uh, it was that faith, that truth, the Lord becoming truth itself as he acts out of that love to save the whole human race, to battle the hells and get everything back into order again. That's how he becomes that righteousness that Abram means there. And that puts him in a position years later to appear to Paul on the road to Damascus and to say, why are you persecuting me? How about working with me? Let's do something here. Let's do something called Christianity. Let's spread this to the Gentiles who don't have this because I love them too. Let's figure out a way. I think you're smart enough to figure out a way. You've been a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, how do you export that without the Hebrewness? You know, <laughs> how do you get that out of there and give that to everybody so everybody can have part of this? Everybody can be a good person. So in conclusion, Scripture and salvation are not so much about being card-carrying members of some inside group that possesses this special information. It's really about being a good person. And that's what brings you to a state where you can believe. That's what brings you into a state where the angels whisper in your ear, where they give you those faithful thoughts. They just get instilled into your mind as you go through your life, bit by bit by bit by bit. Gradually, you become a more faithful person as you are more righteous. Thank you for your kind attention, good friends. Shall we close with a prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and the God of earth. We thank you for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world. Thank you for the glimpse of yourself in that battle against evil to make it possible for us to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that it is both the way that we live our life, not a self-righteousness according to a poorly misunderstood set of rules, but following you in humility, having a righteousness and a faith that come from you. Thank you, Lord. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so we can get us some of that faith.